Hello and welcome to Sternova, an audio business program exploring the intersection of cutting-edge business strategy and the innovations that can ignite business growth. Your host, Brad Rederson, is an innovator and entrepreneur in his own right, with over 30 years' experience in high-tech executive management in fields as diverse as laser systems, information technology, and computer graphics. He is the author and presenter of over 30 papers in strategic innovation and is an inventor with 27 patents worldwide. Welcome to Stranova, and here is your host, Brad Rederson. Today we're going to talk about space and its possibilities for emergent business and innovation. As a baby boomer and long before I started my career in high tech, I was in awe of the possibilities of space and the visions of what the future was going to be like. And if you were like a lot of us, those visions were wondrous and inspiring of automated freeways, ready availability of spaceship travel for everyone, and our various sensing technologies integrated and put to the best of use, monitoring our health and that of the world around us, and automatically correcting for our foibles to make this world indeed a better place. Some 36 years after the first landing of a man on the moon, though, it's a quirky thing to consider all this. We don't have automated freeways, just automated ways of signing up for insurance, it seems. You can't go on Orbitz, the online travel service, and truly sign up to go into orbit on your own. And there's nothing further from automatic than our approach either to health or watching over the care of our planet. So where are the new frontiers of business and space? Have we lost the sense of adventure that brought many of us to thinking about this in the first place? For our guest, Joanne Gabrinowitz, the answer is a definite no. Even though the public face of the public programs may have become routine for some, the business of space is turning out to be both strategic and innovative. As the director of the National Remote Sensing and Space Law Center at the University of Mississippi, Professor Grabenowitz is in a unique place to observe all this, both out of her own sense of wonder at what space is making possible, as well as in the very grounded and blossoming field of space law itself, something that would only become important if the political and business issues of space were also continuing to journey into new territory. In her current role, Professor Grabenowitz has taught space law and policy since 1987 and broadened that discipline to include remote sensing issues since 1990. Since she received her BA from City University of New York in 1977 and her JD from the Cardozo School of Law in 1980, she has served as a research fellow at the U.S. Geological Services Eros Data Center was a member of the U.S. Congress's Earth Observations Advisory Panel and has presented to numerous universities, bipartisan international space policy organizations, and even the U.N. on the issues of space law and its public policy. In honor of her distinguished career and contributions both to the legal matters of space and to her influence in shaping a positive public policy, Professor Gabrinowitz was awarded the 2001 Women in Aerospace Outstanding International Award. She is currently also the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Space Law and is an official observer for the International Astronautical Federation on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. We are honored to have Professor Grabinowitz as our guest this week. Joanne, welcome to Stranova. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Your organization at the University of Mississippi focuses on a very new part of the legal world, space law. In some ways, that almost seems a contradiction in terms, the structured world of law applied to the very seemingly unrestricted world of space. What exactly does the field cover, and how did it even come to exist? In some ways, it's not all that brand new. I mean, interestingly enough, uh, Silkovsky, who is the father of rocketry, 
uh, in the late 1800s, being the visionary he was, uh, understood that the technology that he was envisioning would require a legal regime. And he actually saw the need for a, a space law regime sometime by the mid-20th century. And um, some of the German observers of uh, rocketry at the time also uh, began writing about the eventual need for space law. And it really came about with the launch of Sputnik. When that happened, the world realized that there were no rules for this game. Uh, This was a new human activity, and the rules had to be put in place. So at the international level, you have very frenetic uh, and concerted activity to put into place a um, treaty regime that still governs space. And in the United States, uh, in 1958, we established our first federal statute that both uh, established a civil space program and uh, created NASA. And since then, laws have been written to um, address specific technologies and applications and issues as they arise. And then there's also collateral law relating to space regarding, for example, uh, the Defense Department's use of space, the Department of Commerce, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration uh, with their weather satellites. So there's also these collateral areas, which if you were in those agencies, you wouldn't call it space law, but it is in the larger body of space law. Well, the field may not be that new, but I would imagine that when you were going into law school, that space law wasn't exactly part of the course curriculum. How did you get into this as a field? When I went to law school, uh, there literally was one paragraph and one book when I took international law, and it said something like, oh, by the way, there's these space treaties. And everything I teach or write about, I've had to uh, first go out and learn myself. And uh, that's been both the challenge and the excitement of, of this area. But how I got into it, I mean, we don't have enough time for that, but suffice it to say that um, my undergraduate degree is in history, and I began to see analogs between the founding of the United States and the kind of decisions and strategies that went into creating a, a federated system that we currently have. And I saw analogs between that and decision-making that had to occur regarding the use of space. And I began writing about that, and one thing led to the other, and I have an academic career. Well, as space law's profession is growing, so are the business applications in space also beginning to blossom, and there's some interesting intersections between some of the questions that space law is being asked to address and the new businesses that are being created. Can you tell us a little bit about some of what's happening in, in those areas? Well, there's a lot, and it's really interesting. As we speak, let's see, today is August 19th. Just in the last couple of days, the United States uh, approved an American company to work with a British company to begin work on commercial uh, space tourism vehicles. And uh, the legal aspect of that involves technology transfer issues. And that is always a very difficult, complex, and extremely sensitive area. And the fact that the government has approved this company to go ahead and begin to exchange information with another company in the UK uh, regarding this technology is a big move forward. 
uh, and that's just happened in the last couple of days. So um, the legal aspects regarding commercial space tourism is very, very hot and at the forefront right now. Um, an announcement was made by Japan just yesterday saying that they're getting ready to participate in similar space tourism activities. And the participants are credible participants. I mean, this is something that space advocates have been talking about for 25, 30 years. But this is the first time where we see the coming together of credible business people with practical technology so that for the first time it seems within reach. It's it's going to happen in our lifetime for sure. So that's one area. Another area that's really exciting and very interesting to watch is in Earth observations. Uh, we use satellites and have used satellites to observe the Earth in terms of environmental monitoring and weather. Everybody's familiar with those weather images on TV at night. We've been doing that for a long time, and com countries have been putting up their own satellites, and they're very, very expensive. And what has happened since the end of the Cold War is a move toward coordinating the use of these assets in a much more efficient way and to coordinate them to have consistent monitoring of the Earth to keep track of uh, its health, in effect. And there has been considerable movement toward institutionalizing this activity. It's an idea that has been around since the early 70s, but the political will and the political landscape was not conducive to that. It was not going to happen during the Cold War. But now progress has been made. There is an international organization that has just become permanent this past December. Uh, there's still massive challenges ahead, but the fact is we've never gone gotten this far ahead either. So um, there's more progress than has ever been made, but there's also a lot more progress needed. You also indicated that the tsunami that hit the Far East in the past year actually had a profound impact of sorts in driving this Earth Observations group forward a bit. Now, when I'm talking about Earth observations in this context, we mean observing by satellites, but also observing at the ground level with monitoring systems, uh, seismic systems, also using balloons, aircraft, platforms at very uh, at different levels. And what the tsunami taught us is that part of the world did not have a tsunami monitoring system. There is a system like that on the other side of the planet where the, the nations are more wealthy and can afford it. Where this tsunami occurred, there was no such monitoring system. And the reality came home that if you can have some way of monitoring and have a modicum of warning it would go a very long way to uh, prevent human suffering and loss of food and property and all that. So it was a very uh, timely and tragically dramatic event that helped coalesce the political will. Since I understand the Global Observations Group is involved in a fairly broad range of monitoring activities on the planet Earth, Will it get into the somewhat controversial area of the issue of global warming worldwide? When we talk about Earth monitoring, what we are saying is let's 
keep track to use an analogy, the Earth's vital signs. Uh, if you have a patient and you're a doctor, you're going to keep track of your patient's heartbeat, perspiration, blood pressure, all that kind of stuff. And those readings will tell you the condition of your patient. By analogy, what we're talking about here is taking those vital signs of the Earth and then using that information to determine what's happening and what's going on. So global change is definitely part of the purpose. of. In addition to the clearly complex challenge of integrating all of these remote sensing satellites and terrestrial and airborne monitoring systems, one area that at least used to be a very bright spot on the horizon for space applications was the use of satellite imagery for a variety of applications, everywhere from agricultural uses to urban planning. And yet you don't hear about that too much in the press. And it sounds like that maybe hasn't grown the way anybody had expected it to be some years before. Can you tell us a little bit about that? First of all, that is happening, certainly not at the level that some of the early hyperbole would have indicated would have happened, but it, but it is happening. I have to make a distinction here. When we talk about commercial imagery that's available, we're talking about very high resolution imagery from three meters and below, even less than a meter. This is very different than, for example, the weather satellites that you see on TV, which has a very uh, much broader area of observation. So we're talking about very high resolution where you can identify objects that are nine feet across, whereas when you're looking at the weather, of course, you're looking at clouds and very large areas. So the commercial imagery, which is this high-resolution imagery, still the dominant user of that are governments for intelligence purposes. And so the major clients of the commercial companies are still the uh, intelligence and defense establishments of, of governments. Um, that is still the lion's share of that industry. And their ongoing success will depend on them being able to maintain governments as clients. However, what's interesting, again, just in the last week or so, is there's a lot of uh, interest in what Google has just done, making satellite imagery available through its site. And they're making all sorts of imagery, including satellite imagery. And what this is doing is generating a lot of interest in it. And this could be something that will catalyze the market in a way that the companies have not yet done. So you don't think this is just an example of temporary curiosity about the fact that previously you've been using MapQuest or Google Maps to be able to plot your driving directions from point A to point B, and now you've got the additional gee whiz thing of being able to look at the satellite imagery along the same route. It's too early to tell yet because what it's going to depend on is, yes, you will have the pent-up curiosity factor, but if people begin to look at these things and say, you know, I can use this to find out that. If they take their curiosity and experiment with it, 
they will find things that we may not even think of right now in terms of how they can use it. And that's an unknown right now. Uh, we have to see if the curiosity leads to experimentation and then if the experimentation leads to application. And if that happens, then I think we can see uh, an upsurge in the market. That's a good place to take a short break. We'll be right back. We're talking to Joanne Gabrinowitz, the director of the National Remote Sensing and Space Law Center at the University of Mississippi, about space law and the business of space. The whole concept of space law must have some fairly grounded roots, I would imagine. And as one example, I remember a case when I lived in Oregon that actually plays to the whole idea of remote sensing and even the idea of Fourth Amendment rights, where it had to do with thermal imaging used to be a basis for getting a search warrant on a house without anybody actually having any other evidence other than the use of remote sensing equipments from the outside. How does that relate to the whole issue of sensing remotely from outer space? The name of the case is Kylo. It's a Supreme Court case, and that was ground-based sensing, and it was different than uh, the kind of sensing on some of the satellites. This was a, a thermal sensor which could read the amount of heat being radiated from a building. And in that case, the uh, defendant was growing marijuana plants and the authorities took thermal readings of the house and it was generating a great deal of heat, more than would be used normally in a house. And so they they figured that these were special heat generating lamps to help plants grow and that became uh, the basis of a search and it went up to the Supreme Court and again this is a very complicated time-consuming discussion because there was only a plurality it's still yet to be determined what impact of that case is going to be but what's significant for our conversation is that you are dealing with sensing technologies more and more in a lot of different everyday life situations. But when you talked about space law being grounded in earth law, any kind of law is based on precedent, which means whenever you have something new, you always look to what have we done before that's like this, that we can extract principles from and we can extract rules from. 
And so when Sputnik went up and we were looking at space for the first time, the analogies we came up with came from maritime law, interestingly enough, because conceptually we said space is like the high seas because they are beyond the jurisdictional boundaries of nation states. And therefore, that became the conceptual basis for writing the rules for space. And space, like the high seas and like Antarctica, which is on Earth, is a global commons. And and the law treats it that way. Have there been any major space law disputes that have made it all the way through the courts? No, because what tends to happen is any activities involved in space are extremely important national uh, interest activities, and the nations want to resolve those things diplomatically and want to do that as a matter of sovereign prerogative rather than rendering the decision-making authority over to a court. Once you give it to a court, you are giving up your authority, and, and sovereigns hate to do that. So, for example, an interesting case happened in the 1970s when a uh, Soviet satellite came down on the northwest territories of Canada, and it had a nuclear power source on it. And when it it, it destabilized and came in on a unexpected uh, landing, crash landed, it spewed radioactive material over a 500-mile area in the Northwest Territories. And that was the first time that the treaties, uh, well, some of the treaties, the Liability Convention and the Return and Rescue Agreement were catalyzed in an actual event. And to make a long story short, uh, Canada and the Soviet Union reached what would be uh, the equivalent of an out-of-court settlement because they did not want to bring it to a claims commission or to a court. They reached a decision themselves. But I'm of the opinion that that shows that the treaties did work because without the treaties, the treaties provided that if they didn't reach a diplomatic conclusion, they would have to go to a claims commission. And I think uh, both countries definitely did not want that to happen. And if that was not kind of hanging over their head, they may not have reached a settlement, but they did. It does sound like the treaties are working, and it also could be that in our post-Cold War era that perhaps the political issues of space aren't as big a deal as they have been in the past. That's interesting, too, because there are some post-Cold War uh, globalization era issues that are emerging that are very different than the Cold War issue. For example, one issue now is there are some quarters in the defense establishment who want to place weapons in space. And currently, the treaties prohibit nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction, and weapons of mass destruction include nuclear, atomic, biological, and chemical weapons. And it's clear that those are illegal. What gets a little fuzzy is what's a conventional weapon, and what kind of damage can that do, and what is the intent of the treaties. So there is debate now where some quarters of the defense establishment want to place weapons in space and want to find out how to do that consistent with the treaties and what it would permit. Um, the opponents of that, of course, think it's a very bad idea. And the argument goes like this. The, the advocates of space weapons argue that we are incredibly dependent 
dependent on space. So much of what we do on Earth depends on space assets, everything from weather monitoring to telecommunications to data transfer, you name it. There's nothing that gets done anymore that doesn't have something to do with with a satellite. Therefore, because we are so dependent on space, we need to protect it, and we protect it by putting weapons in space. Counter-argument, the people who think that's a bad idea, start from the same place. They say, yes, we are incredibly dependent on space, and right now it is a stable environment in which weapons have not been introduced. Therefore, by introducing weapons into space, you're going to destabilize it. The nation that puts weapons in space automatically becomes a target and becomes the reason why other nations feel they will have to put weapons in space. And therefore, we decrease our security and decrease our ability to depend on space. So they both start from the same place, but with different results. Of course, as the costs associated with going into space become lower, the situation would seem like it's going to get messier. Well, it's still very, very expensive to do. And an interesting part of the debate is in the defense establishment, certain branches of the military want to do this and other branches of the military are totally against it because they say if we start putting all that money into space weapons, which is still very expensive and requires a lot of research, then the branches of the military for whom space is not their primary mission will suffer and by having resources be diverted to the space weapons. So it's not even clear that within the defense establishment itself that this is a a clear uh, way forward. Getting back to some of the more peaceful applications of space, how do you see the whole field of space science and space research moving forward in the coming year? A very important part of space activities are the space science sides, uh, in addition to the human exploration of space, as well as the Earth monitoring and the planetary science. And there is concern that the focus on human exploration may cause an imbalance among those uh, different activities. And right now, the political battles are occurring to try to see what kind of uh, balance, if at all, will be achieved among those different interests. And that's something that is still happening now and to be uh, watched closely. How have recent issues involving the space shuttle affected the future of the space program, if at all? As far as the shuttle itself, it's been the national policy for a long time, long before the the recent difficulties, to have a new space vehicle. Uh, the It had been the policy since the late 80s, early 90s, to phase out the shuttle and begin to replace it with a follow-on vehicle. I mean, it was clear that the shuttle, like any transportation vehicle, is only going to be usable for a certain period of time, and then you have to be prepared to replace it with something, just like your family car. You can't have it run forever. So that's been the policy for a long time. What the recent difficulties have done is recognize the need to really speed up and act on that policy and identify an actual vehicle to replace the shuttles. Are you ready to blast off in space yourself and try out some of that human space flight you've been talking about? Yeah, I'd go. I would if I passed the the health requirements and the various things you would have to do. Right now, the way the law is written is I basically 
shoulder that risk. If I die or I'm injured, uh, I, I have to accept that. So we're not likely going to see kiosks selling last-minute life insurance when you take off on a conventional plane flight at a space flight center in the near future. No, not right away. Although it's interesting, in the recent law that was just passed regarding this, the first version of the law provided for no kind of liability for anybody traveling on a, um, a commercial space tourism vehicle. But in the compromising and the wrangling that goes on in the political process, that was changed somewhat to also take into consideration potential harm for people on the ground. So there's been some balancing out, but still, by and large, if I'm going to travel in space, at least on a commercial vehicle, I am going to assume that risk. As a as an astronaut of a national astronaut corps, you basically agree to that anyway. Well, Joanne, thank you for taking the time with us today to talk a bit about the future of space flight, space travel, space science, and space law. Thanks again. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. Don't go just yet. Stay tuned for some final reflections for today on the field of strategic innovation. After our discussion, I am curious. Is space the final frontier for all things, including business? Well, as in any ecological system, whether biological or the interdependent network of businesses that make up an economic biosphere, it's usually the edges where the most innovative creation is going on. And in space, that is what has happened. Back in the 1940s, I believe, science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke postulated the idea of geosynchronous telecommunication satellites posted around our planet. That idea has transformed into the massive array of global weather, cable television, and even satellite radio businesses that have literally changed our perspective on the world. New manufacturing and biomedical processes exist just because of the availability of this incredible lab where gravity is not a factor and the vacuum of space is right there to access when you need it. Sure, when I was growing up, I thought we'd all be taking rockets all over the place, whether to go to Mars or, quite frankly, just to get across Manhattan. And I also grew up without much understanding about the need to take the pulse of the planet on a daily basis, both to make sure it was healthy and to allow us to take preventative action to keep it that way. So, no, it hasn't turned out the way I expected it, but what has happened is still miraculous to the little kid that still lives inside of me. Who knows? I might be on one of those spacecraft for hire in the next 10 years. And maybe our new perspectives from the Global Earth Observation Project will lead to a new way to help the entire world thrive in a way it never has before. At its essence, space is less an exact place than a field where the old rules don't apply, and you can craft new ones as needed, just as Professor Korbinowitz has observed in the burgeoning field of space law. And if you ask any entrepreneur, they'll tell you that's the best place they'd like to be. That's our reflection for this episode, and if I can help you develop any of your own new ventures, please contact me at brad at stranova.com. For further information on the topics discussed in this week's show, as well as for other information on the intersection of strategy and innovation, please visit us at www.stranova.com. Also, if you have any comments on this week's show or suggestions for future shows, please feel free to contact us at ideas at This recording 
is copyright 2005 by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson, thanking all of you for joining us this week on Spernova. <laughs>